Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloane, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we're bringing you the story of Albert Anastasia. Is that correct? Yes. All right, cool. Great. He's Thought a I mobster. A I'm, I'm excited. I love the mob cases. <laughs> Cannot wait. Speaking of mobs, this weekend, Trish and I went to a very beautiful wedding. <laughs> Not that they're either, not mob related. Not but... that either one of them are in the mob, but on this, the day of my daughter's wedding, <laughs> <laughs> there is the connection for y'all. If you couldn't make it, if you couldn't jump with me, I'm very much like Lorelai Gilmore in that way, <laughs> like the way that I connect movies and songs and shit. Yeah. Anyways, we went to a very beautiful wedding. So shout out to the Alonzos if you're listening. Congratulations. We wish you the best. And big ol' shout-out to RCD, <laughs> Tyson Adkins. Uh, gave us a shout-out during the actual ceremony. <laughs> we were like, what? After he predicted his own murder yes. for failing to be a great officiant, which we think you did great, RCD, which also R is for reverend in that, and you're actually an officiant, but we'll still call you Reverend Captain Dr. Tyson Atkins. Right. But beautiful wedding. Great time. We got to see friends that we haven't seen in a long time. Uh, it was just all in all a really great night. A really beautiful wedding. And yeah. We had a good time. It was the uh, second weekend of weddings for me. The weekend before this one was my nephew's wedding. And it was like two completely different weddings. Nick's and Olivia's was very laid back. Just kind of, they went for like country comfort, I guess you could say. And Dwayne and Savannah were definitely more, a little more formal. But they were both beautiful weddings. It was just, it was kind of funny. And I also did laugh at the fact that, um, my nephew's wedding took place in Ohio and the weather for their wedding was like, it was warm. It was sunny. Like, yes, it was a little windy, but like for Ohio in November, it was like perfect. You couldn't have asked for like a better day. And then we're, <laughs> I was like, oh, the next weekend I'm gonna be in Florida, you know, it's, gonna be hot and probably so freaking humid that no we got hit by a cold front and we were all freezing <laughs> i was so glad i grabbed my like little cardigan <laughs> i had on a tank top dress and one of our friends was like aren't you freezing aren't you gonna freeze by the time the ceremony's over no, but I also did not factor in that the groom's parents was going to be 45 minutes late. <laughs> it was fine. It was fine. It just, it made for some laughing, like, moments. It did, but they literally said, all right, everybody's free to go. And I ran my ass back to the car in my little heels to grab my jacket because I was freezing. Yeah. It was, it was definitely, like, a drastic change in temperature, like, as soon as we got to the venue. Because when we left, I was like, eh, it's not that bad. We got to the venue, and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is a weather change. But, 
Anyways, we were going to do this little thing in the last episode. We completely forgot. So, Hummus Express. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, again, shout out to, I guess, the multiple new brides and grooms in my life. But, like I said, for like us as Tequila, she wrote, we have the one in common. And so, shout out to the Alonzos. We are rooting for you. We love you both. And shout out to uh, good old RCDC, even though he dropped the second C. Uh, <laughs> He's no longer commissioner. It's fine. <laughs> for the shout out. And yeah. He dropped our fantasy football league, so he lost the commissioner stance. <laughs> if you got a problem with that, RCDC, come fight me. <laughs> All right, y'all, buckle up for the Hot Mess Express. Let's go. Welcome back to another round of Bartending with Sloan. Today we are going to do another caramel caramel apple drink. This one's kind of easier than the last one, but really there are so many variations to make this. And there, there are so many ways, ways to make caramel apples. So yeah. like, really it depends on what you're looking for. For this variation... This time around, what I'm doing is I took 0.75 caramel vodka, and then I took 0.5 of the apple, green apple... Pucker. Pucker. I was about to say sucker. <laughs> pucker. The green apple pucker. You could also use green apple vodka. We're just out of it. And also that would change the flavor a little bit and the alcohol content, but I digress. So... 0.75 of the caramel vodka, 0.5 of the green apple pucker, and then three ounces of apple cider. And this to me is like my perfect green apple covered, like caramel covered apple, like on a stick. When I would go to the fair as a kid, that's the one that I wanted. Forget the nuts, forget the candies, forget all that. I just wanted the green apple with the caramel on it. And that's what this drink is in a glass with ice. <laughs> so if that is what you're going for, if that's the vibe that you like with your caramel apple, this is the drink to try. If you like more of the caramel, do more of the vodka, add a little caramel rim to it. If you want more of the sour, I would definitely say do like 0.5 of the caramel vodka, 0.5 green apple vodka, and then like 0.5 of the apple pucker. But this really is just like, if you were one of those people that loves the, the candied apples, this is a great base to start with. If you like the nut covered ones, I would do like a, a pecan rim. Yeah. But it's, like I said, it's, it's just whatever you prefer. Easy to do. Great fall, winter drink. And I hope you enjoy. Alright, as we said, today's case is about Albert Anastasia. However you want to say his last name, I'm sure there's different 
variations of ways you could say it. But this is an old mobster case, which they just fascinate me. I I don't know why I love these like stories and that so much, but I do. I'm sure back like when this was all going on, it was a very scary time. Because you gotta think, they're just random people getting like shot and killed like all over. And you might have known who who like did it, but because of their connections and whatnot, or like lack of witnesses, <laughs> like things just kind of got like swept under the rug. So, but anyways, this is about Albert Anastasia, and the first little bit's gonna be kind of like a little history lesson type thing, and then we're gonna get into like about I guess like his downfall. So, born Umberto Anastasio on September 26, 1902 in I had to look up how to say this and I'm probably still going to say it wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Paralia in uh Calibria, Italy, which is kind of like the bottom of the boot. It's basically like Sicily, but like not. Um, he was born to Bartolomo Anastasio and Mariana Polistenia. My Italian, like... <laughs> relatives are probably rolling around in their grave right now and I do apologize but you never passed it on you didn't teach me I tried it's hard but anyways his father was a railway worker who died after world war one and he left behind nine children eight boys and one girl that poor girl I know what it's like to be outnumbered by boys. And in a way, it's a good thing. But in a way, you're also like, ugh. <laughs> in 1919, Albert and his brothers Joseph, Anthony, and Gerardo entered the U.S. illegally by deserting a freighter that they were working aboard when it docked in New York City. And they started working as longshoremen, which is basically dock workers, on the Brooklyn waterfront. And on March 17th, 1921, he was, Albert, was convicted of killing longshoreman George Torino. And this was due to, like, a fight that happened between the two men. He was sentenced to death and sent to Sing Sing State Prison in Osing, New York. I think that's how it's said. But if you don't... I don't know, 
a lot of details about Sing Sing, but I do know, like, it gets brought up in a lot of, like, high-profile cases, and it's apparently, like, one I of the... I consider myself a professional on Sing Sing, because it is brought up on Law & Order SVU. <laughs> I know it is a very high-profile, like, prison, and it's not a very good one to be a part of. I know that Elliot always <laughs> went to Sing Sing. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, just, it's, you know, it's slowing in her TV, so she's a professional. <laughs> it's either Elliot or Detective Tutuola. The two badasses. All right, Ice Cube. Sit down. Hey. Hey. Uh, I love my Detective Tutuola and Munch. I married God. Munch. I just always love like the like the people trying to describe like Ice Cube's like role on like Law and Order. They're like he's like the dumbest cop around. He's like, you mean to tell me this man raped his like neighbor's daughter? Yeah, he plays dumb. Yeah, (laughs) like like if you want to know a synopsis of what this whole case is about. Just find a scene with him being, like, told about this case. And he will literally be like, you mean to tell me? (laughs) I Uh, love Detective Tutuola. God, it's hilarious. But anyways, as I was saying, Albert got sent to Sing Sing to await, like, execution. But he won a retrial in 1922 due to a legal technicality where four of the original prosecution witnesses just so happened to disappear. So Albert was released from custody, so he avoided the death sentence. And during this time, he changed his last name from Anastasio to Anastasia. Then on June 6, 1923, he was convicted of illegal possession of a firearm and sentenced to two years in prison. In 1937, he met and married his then wife, Elsa Barginisi, sure, I'm going to say that. And they went on to have two sons, Umberto and Richard, and then two daughters, Joanna and Gloriana. So, like, that's a little about his backstory. Now we're going to get into some even more kind of details, kind of going on about how he basically worked his way into the mob and became a big player in it. So, by the late 1920s, Albert had become a top leader of the International Longshoresmen's Association, and he controlled six local chapters of the labor union in Brooklyn, So, before he was even a part of the mob, he was already showing, like, he could control, like, a a lot of people, basically. Albert allied himself with Brooklyn's powerful mafia leader, Giuseppe Joe the Boss, 
Maziara. And he then became close to the um, basically future Cosa Nostra boss, Joe Adonis, and Charles Lucky Luciano. And then also Vito uh, Gino Versi and Frank Costello. So, like, these, like, basically five men were, like, the big players in, like, the New York area mob scene. And their families are the ones that always get brought up and are the ones that are always trying to seek power over the other ones. In 1928, Albert was charged with a murder in Brooklyn, but the witnesses either disappeared or refused to testify. I mean, that is kind of like your standard stuff for like mob, (laughs) mob killings and that, like I said. The reason why like mobsters were so hard for like police and that to really like pin down was either because you had so many crooked cops or like witnesses just suddenly disappeared or suddenly like saw nothing. They didn't know nothing. They saw nothing. Leave me alone. In early 1931 was the start of the Costa, Costa, I'm not going to be able to say this name. It was a big, like, war through, like, the Italian, like, America mafia scene. It was a power struggle between all the families, and it mainly happened between Joe the Boss, Maziara, and Salvatore, Marizano. So Albert had his roles in the power struggle, but in 1932, he was indicted on charges of murdering another man with an ice pick. Ouch. Right? I was like, oof. (laughs) The case was dropped due to lack of witnesses. The following year, he was charged with killing another man who worked in a laundry. And again, because of lack of witnesses, he was let go. Albert worked with Luciano, and due to his loyalty, basically as a reward, Albert and a Luis um, Buchlerter, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it was another big mafia guy. They were made, like, the leading labor racketeers, like, in the country, like, for this area. And they were basically given control of a, like, it's basically, it's called Murder, Inc. And it was basically, like, what they call the syndicate or commission. It was basically like a governing body for the mafia. And they were the ones that you contacted when you wanted to put a hit out on somebody. So, obviously, they called it Murder, Inc. But it did have its own, like, little (laughs) hidden, like, back way. 
So the troop, which was also known as the Brownsville Boys, was a group of Jewish and Italian contract killers. They operated out of the back room of the Midnight Roses candy store. And it was owned by mobster Louis Capone in the Brownstone, like in the Brownsville neighborhood in Brooklyn. And during its 10 years of operation, it's estimated that Murder Inc. committed thousands of murders, many of which are unsolved. So, due to his role in Murder Inc., Albert was nicknamed the Mad Hatter. Or the Lord High Executioner. The first test for Murder, Inc. came in 1935 when it ordered Dutch Schultz to basically change plans and murder special prosecutor Thomas E. Dewey. Luciano, who was like the basically one of the big mob bosses, didn't agree with this plan because he feared that it would basically backfire and cause a like massive law enforcement crackdown. So Schultz (laughs) was upset basically that Luciano was basically trying to take this hit away from him and said he was going to kill Dewey anyway and like stormed out of this meeting. And like basically you could say what you want, but like if the mob bosses said, hey, we're not doing this, you didn't do it. And if you did, there were consequences. Well, like I said, Schultz was like very upset about the fact that, you know, he was contracted, but it was getting taken away from him. And he decided he didn't care. He wanted to do it anyways. His big thing was, though. His mistake was he basically came to Albert asking him to stake out Dewey's apartment. And Albert, trying to remain loyal and everything, went to Luciano with this information. So a private meeting was held and the commission decided to eliminate Schultz. On October 23rd, 1935, before he could kill Dewey, Schultz was shot in a tavern in New York, uh, Newark, New Jersey, and succumbed to his injuries the following day. On June 7th, 1936, a prosecution by Dewey's office, masterminded by Eunice Carter, convicted Luciano on 62 counts of forced prostitution. So in a way, maybe if Dewey had been offed, this wouldn't have happened, but it kind of ends up favoring Albert in a way. So like I said, Luciano, the big mob boss, is convicted on 62 counts of forced prostitution, And on July 18th, 1936, he received 30 to 50 year sentence in state prison. And one of the other big mob bosses, uh, Gino Versi, Mm -hmm. he kind of became like an acting boss 
and he fled to Italy in 1937 after being indicted on a 1934 murder. But he was still, like, had his power and whatnot, which I feel like if you're able to control it from Italy and still, like, have control in New York, you got some big reach there. But, um... So you have him, and he's a big player here coming up soon, so just remember him. But while Luciano was in jail, Costello became, like, the acting boss for the Luciano crime family. So Albert then starts to make some big moves. He orders three hits on... Well, three or four hits. It depends on how you, what you read in that. But he basically orders these hits on people that are associated with Murder Inc., whether it was just to gain power or he believed they were rats in that. But it said that three or four of these men were killed on Albert's like call. So, during World War II, Albert reportedly conceived, like, basically came up with this plan to win a pardon for Luciano by helping the war effort. The U.S. was trying to get allies in Sicily so that they could gain access to Italy. And Albert was like, hey... I can provide that, but for me to do that, I need a deal. And so he bargained to get Luciano basically on a lighter treatment, and then that eventually led to the parole of Luciano. In 1942, Albert joined the U.S. Army, and this was motivated by the fact that Murder, Inc. was kind of slowly dismantling due to being linked to a bunch of criminal investigations. And remember, this man is basically an illegal immigrant at this point. He didn't come through Ellis Island. He didn't get the proper documentation to be like, all right, cool, you're now a member. (laughs) Like all this stuff. So he joins the U.S. Army. And in the Army, he trained men to be longshoremen at Fort India, yeah, Indian Town Gap, yeah, Fort Indian Town Gap in Pennsylvania. In 1943, as a reward <coughs> for his service, he gained citizenship. So it works out in his favor. The following year, Anastasia was honorably discharged and moved his family to a ranch house on Bluff Road in Fort Lee, New Jersey. In 1948, he bought a dressmaking factory in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and left his waterfront activities in the control of his brother, Anthony. In 1951, he was summoned to the U.S. Senate to answer questions about organized crime at There's a lot of, like, strange names, and I was like, I'm going to try to remember how to say that. 
there's just too many. But it's like, it was at the hearings for like another basically mobster. I think the name is Kefaver. But Albert refused to answer any questions. He didn't, he didn't like rats. He never wanted to be one. He was always like known for being loyal. So they summoned him, but he basically pled the fifth, said he didn't know jack shit. So Albert was a notable mob power, but in reality, he was really just kind of like an underboss for like the majority of the time for the Mangano crime family, which the underboss for like that family was actually Vincent Mongo, but like Albert basically had as much power as him. So during his 20-year rule, Mangano um, resented Albert's close ties with Luciano and Castillo, and he particularly hated the fact that he obtained (laughs) basically... um, He particularly hated the fact that they would basically seek out Albert's, like, services without seeking out, like, their, like, Mangano's permission first. So, like, you can say you're the boss, but you're basically getting cut out of the equation. (laughs) Which probably doesn't look that great. So, this led to many fights between Albert and Vincent. And on April 19th, 1951, Mangano went missing and his body was never found. The same day, his brother Philip was discovered in Jamaica Bay. So, basically, you have the boss and the underboss gain killed and it's all a big mystery or so you think like basically everyone is under the assumption that Albert put out these hits to get rid of them but obviously Albert doesn't ever fess up to this police and that never say yeah he did it But it's all assumed by everybody. So after their deaths, there was a meeting with the commission to basically name Albert as the new boss of the crime family. Albert basically had to deny that he had any part in their killings to get that. But he does eventually get named as the boss that he basically always was acting as anyways. And Costello wanted his, like, allyship because (laughs) he's, like, ambitious and was resentful towards uh, Gino Bersi. And Anastasia was supported by Joseph Bonanno. And so, like, 
basically to like avoid a gang war, Costello was like, "All right, I I I want this guy. I want to make sure that I'm still on good terms with him." In March 1952, it's alleged that Albert ordered the murder of Arnold Schuster. Arnold was a New York man. They identified, like, so Arnold Schuster was a New York man that identified fugitive bank robber Willie Sutton, resulting in Sutton's arrest. And on March 8th, 1952, a gunman shot Schuster to death on the street of the Borough Park, like, Brooklyn area. And Albert was accused by law, but law enforcement was very skeptical of this. Also, I think he was probably paying some of them, so, uh, yeah. And loyalty can be bought. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Basically, I forget who it was accused Albert, but law enforcement was like, eh, we don't <laughs> think so. Even though, if you know, if you, like, research into him, you're like, eh, he probably did. He definitely probably did. On December 9th, 1952, the federal government wanted to denaturalize Albert and deport him back to Italy because he apparently lied on his citizenship application. Oh, who would have thought it? <laughs> so basically you have this going on, but the like request to like basically denaturalize him to deport him was overturned. So, like, didn't have to worry about it. Meanwhile, the war between the families continues on, and to take control of the Luciano family, uh, Gino Versi knows that he needs to kill Costello, but he can't do that without also getting rid of Albert. So he looked for allies using Albert's brutal nature against him. Albert was portrayed as an unstable killer who threatened to bring law enforcement like pressure on the Cosa Nostra like families. But I mean at the same time Albert's gotten away with how much from like a law boy's view. So was he really bringing like this spotlight onto the families. Who knows? It was also pointed out that apparently Albert had been selling memberships to his crime family for $50,000, which was a clear violation of commission rules. And this infuriated many high-level mobsters. But I will say that... Apparently, this was not Albert's doing. It was, like, kind of his right-hand man's doing. And that guy was... <laughs> so, Albert or whoever took care of that problem. So, 
while this is all going on, like before he's killed, uh, Gino Versi wanted to basically win the support of Albert's right-hand man, who was Carlo Gambino. And he offered him the leadership of Albert's family in return for his cooperation. So, <laughs> it's a lot of back and forth power struggle, just kind of like how you always see. On May 23rd, 1955, Anastasia pleads guilty to tax evasion for underreporting his income during the late 1940s. Shocker. They mobster <laughs> not reporting everything. Huh. You don't say. <laughs> On June 3rd, 1955, Albert was sentenced to one year in federal prison with a $20,000 fine. After being convicted, the federal government was able to petition to revoke Albert's citizenship so that he could be deported. But again, a high court steps in and basically overturns this ruling. In early 1957, Gino Versi decides he is going to make his move on Costello. And he was shot and wounded outside of his apartment building. But this wound was not fatal. But it did persuade Costello to retire and give power to Gino Versi. So... Yes, it wasn't a big killing, but, I mean, it got him his, basically what he wanted. His badge. Yes. His badge of honor. So, basically, a sit-down was planned so that, a, like, immediate war could be stopped between Gino Versi and Albert. And... It did help the peace for a little bit, but all it really did was basically give time to concoct their plan to basically get rid of Albert. And on the morning of October 25th, 1957, Albert entered the barbershop of the Park Sheraton Hotel at 56th Street and 7th Avenue in Midtown Manhattan. His driver parked in the car, well, parked the car in an underground garage and took a walk, leaving Albert unprotected. Somebody might have been paid off because you don't ever leave a mob boss unprotected. And as Albert relaxed in the barber's chair, two men with scarves covering their faces, rushed in, shoved the barber out of the way, and fired at Albert. After the first, first shots, Albert lunged at what he thought was the attackers, but it was really the mirror. And they continued to shoot at him and eventually killed him. The death of Albert Anastasia caused tremendous public interest in high-profile police investigation 
but despite the interest and the high-profile investigation, no one was ever charged in his murder. Speculation centered on the crime families. The NYPD concluded that Anastasia's homicide had been arranged by Gino Versi and Gambino, but again, no charges ever came from it. Albert's funeral service was conducted at a Brooklyn funeral home. The Roman Catholic uh, Diocese of Brooklyn had refused to sanction a church burial. And Albert was interred in Greenwood Cemetery in Greenwood Heights, Brooklyn. And it was attended by a handful of friends and relatives. And his gravestone is actually marked Anastasio. So even though he changed his name, he must not have done it like legally or he maybe had a stipulation that when he did die, he wanted his actual last name, I guess, put down. And in 1958, the family that was left immigrated to Canada, and they changed their name from Anastasio, like, I guess, Anastasio or Anastasia, whatever they were using, to Anasio. It's literally spelled A-N-I-S-I-O. So, if that is your last name, you are probably related to a mobster, whether you knew that or not. Um, <laughs> you probably know. But, that is kind of the life and uh, death of Albert or Umberto Anastasio. And like I said, I love me a good mob story. I think I looked up like mob crimes and it brought up like the killings of like multiple like big crime mobsters. And this one popped up and it just talked like they kind of do a brief overview. They don't give a whole lot of details. I was like, it sounds interesting. Let me look into it. And then I saw he was an Italian who came to America and that, and I was like, huh, this kind of sounds like my grandpa. <laughs> Although we're not from the boot. We're from like basically around Rome. So I do know we're not Sicilian. Although if you know my family and our temper, you might, you might argue that. Uh, <laughs> um, but if you enjoy these mob stories, I would love to sprinkle in some more. There were definitely multiple, multiple interesting ones in the article I found. But I guess that is my case. And with that being said, I will pass you off to Sloan to give you the last call. Welcome back to another Last Call with Sloan. I was just telling Trish, I was like, I feel like we've done this one, but also maybe it's just our friendship. So if we do, I'm going to have her stop me, but I didn't want to tell her what it was until we got here. So 20 little known facts about Anastasia on the movies 
25th anniversary. I don't recall us doing this on the podcast. Technically, the anniversary is November 23rd, but we're close enough to it, to this release date. Exactly. So, number one, Anastasia is not a Disney movie. Yes, I know you know that. I know you know that. But a lot of us don't, like, we're all, I know growing up, I was like, why is Anastasia not a Disney princess? Because technically it's a Fox release and Fox wasn't picked up by Disney till later. Correct. Correct. So, unfortunately, yeah. Two, Anastasia was Fox's first animated film. The 1997 classic marked 20th Century Fox's first and only 2D animated film. It began using computer animation shortly after. It is one of my favorite movies of all time. Dimitri was my crush growing up. I fucking loved him and Anastasia is my personality, okay? (laughs) Three, Kirsten Dunst voiced young Anastasia. Meg Ryan provides the speaking voice you know and love for Anastasia as an adult, but 15-year-old Dunst is who you hear as the earlier scenes at the palace. I was obsessed with Kirsten Dunst growing up. Love her. Meg Ryan, I mean, she had a chokehold on how many 90s like rom-coms. Yes, amen. Kate and Leopold, come on. Four, one of your favorite Mean Girls stars is young Anastasia's singing voice. Gretchen Wieners! Oh my god! <laughs> lent her impressive pipes to the film for musical scenes. How crazy is that? Wow. Her hair is big because it's full of secrets. <laughs> Number five, Dimitri bears a startling resemblance to a few other animated characters. Both the dad in A Troll in Central Park and Prince Cornelius in Thumbelina look a hell of a lot like Anastasia's Dimitri. Coincidentally, Don Bluth directed all three films. I don't know. Cornelius was always, like, one of my least favorite, like, leading men, I guess you could say. And, like, I don't know. He, He did nothing for me, okay? But Dimitri does everything Dimitri! Oh, my God. God, that man. (laughs) (laughs) Number six of all of Bluth's films, Anastasia was the most popular. The movie went on to gross $139,804,348 at the box office worldwide. I probably only contributed to a thousand of that. It's okay. (laughs) Only only Only. a thousand. (laughs) I've only gone through, I don't know how many... uh, VHS and DVDs. This was at this the movie. box office, so this but was yeah, theater. But even I saw it in theater many a times. Number seven, Anastasia's dog in the movie was inspired by the Romanov's real life pet. The adorable oh, the dog. <laughs> the adorable floppy eared spaniel that follows after the princess is very much real. The dog was actually named Joy and was the pet of Crown Prince Alexei. Anastasia's brother. Alexei, Alexei. Alexei. Miraculously, Joy survived the massacre of the monarchy at the palace and lived out the rest of his life in England after being taken in by the Colonel Pavel Rodzianko? Rodzian? I don't know. Colonel R! (laughs) 
At least he let the dog live. No. Number eight, <laughs> Bernadette. <laughs> I'm rewatching. I'm, I'm watching Big Bang Theory for the first time, and I am Bernadette. <laughs> One million percent, I am Bernadette. Anyways, Bernadette Peters reportedly wasn't thrilled about how her character looked. The legendary actress voices the sultry Sophie. Ah, oh, Sophie, I love her. Who has curves for days. Yes, she does. According to co-director Gary Goldman, Peters was disappointed Sophie didn't look more like her own slim figure. Who wants to be slim when you can be slim thick with your ass, yo? Mm. <laughs> Sophie was mm. great. I love her. Number nine, it was John Cusack's very first time voicing an animated character. Like Dunst, Cusack had never worked as a voice actor before Anastasia. Number ten, the woman behind adult Anastasia's singing voice has plenty of practice playing cartoon princesses. Liz Calloway filled in for Meg Ryan during the music numbers and has voice credits for Odette in Swan Princess. Which, fucking love that movie too. Jasmine in Aladdin, The Return of Jafar, yeah. and King of the Thieves, and Kiara in The Lion King 2, Simba's Pride. Number 11, Bartok's, Bartok's, Bartok. Bartok's voice <laughs> was almost completely different. Oh. Who does not love sassy bad Bartok? Apparently the crew did you not. Kick her, sir. <laughs> Apparently the crew did not at first because of Hank Azaria's voice. Azaria? Azaria? He explained how he won them over during a Reddit AMA in 2013. I kind of went out on a limb with that voice. It was also based on a family member of mine. I really had a strong feeling that it would be fun and it would work. I'll never forget the look on the producer and director's face when I did it. I think they really thought I was insane. I think that after that they got in the editing room and started cutting it together, they really liked it. It must have been so different from what they imagined the character originally <laughs> that they must have thought I was just nuts. <laughs> I love Bart. <laughs> I give her a yah and, and a hi yah and a kicker, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. Blame the bat. <laughs> I feel like out of any of the characters in that movie, that's who I would be. <laughs> Number 12, Anastasia was nominated for two Oscars. The film scored nominations for both Best Original Song, Journey to the Past, oh. and Best Original Musical or Comedy Score. Yes, Journey to the Past is great, but Once Upon a December is by far the best song. Oh, I fucking agree there. I don't remember much from the movie. I've I have it on Amazon Prime. I bought it specifically for Trish to have to watch anytime she I wanted owned it. Two copies of the DVD. I know, but we all know that DVD players fail sometimes, and sometimes internet fails. So like, it was just best. It was on sale on Amazon Prime for like four or five dollars, and I was like, I know this is Trish's favorite. She's got my Amazon Prime on her. It's on one her of my TV. favorites. Yes. So like, I bought it. And I've watched it recently in my adulthood, but literally all I can really remember is the bat and once upon a December oh, by a dream costume of mine one day is to be Anastasia. 
we'll do it one day. The slutty Anastasia. I'm gonna make it happen. <laughs> she she didn't say the slutty part. I did. Anyways, thirteen. The way Rasputin originally dies is much closer to how it actually went down. In real life, Rasputin suffered a number of fatal blows. He was beaten, poisoned with cyanide, shot, and stabbed before he was finally thrown in an icy river. 14. Anastasia's iconic yellow dress also has roots in reality. The gorgeous gown and crown she wears at the end of the movie is based on an ensemble worn by the in-real-life princess. 15. There is a Broadway musical adaption. I want to see it so bad. And yes, Journey to the Past sounds just as incredible, if not more so, on stage. But once again, where is Once Upon a December? I think I think it's a part of it. It better be, because that is the song that makes me cry. And I want to... I think maybe the reason that song has such a hold on me is my grandfather collected... Um, like music boxes. music boxes yes yes and whenever he passed away like that was the one thing my grandmother let us come in and claim was our own music boxes and i'm not, he didn't have an anastasia one but like maybe that's my connection to anastasia is like the music box theme however i have mentioned this in the past i did walk away with a gone with the wind music box i talked about that on an episode and then i also have like a little girl in a teacup and my grandparents always took me to Disney World. And so I just remember riding the teacup with my grandfather. So those were the two that I was like, I was like, I have to have the teacup. And then I grabbed Gone with the Wind. I did not know what it was about or anything. And then my grandmother was like, all right, now I have to teach you about Gone with the Wind. <laughs> so knowing that like Dimitri is like my favorite, like probably like cartoon leading man. And then like, that I identify with Anastasia so well. I was like, maybe that's why I'm single because, like, literally looking at their relationship, I'm like, <laughs> it's literally them picking at each other till they're like, all right, yeah, we do like each other. <laughs> he almost dies, and then she's like, but wait, <laughs> I do like you. That is true. That, that is factual. Uh, <laughs> Number 16. <laughs> <clears throat> The scenes in Paris are inspired by famous French artists. The background that appears to be done in delicate brushstrokes during the Paris Holds the Key to Your Heart number is a nod to artists like Claude Monet and Edgar Degas. Degas? Degas? Degas. I was so proud of myself for getting Claude Monet right that I did not give a fuck about the (laughs) second name until I got there. Paris Holds the Key to Your Heart. (laughs) 17. There are some noteworthy historical cameos. While we would not recommend basing your book report on Anastasia, the yeah, movie does feature not that accurate. The movie does feature quick shots of historical figure figures like Josephine Baker, Maurice Chevalier, Isadora Duncan, August Rodin, and Sigmund Freud in the Paris Holds the Key montage. Yeah. 18. Also, can we just talk about Anastasia's blue dress in Paris? You can talk about whatever you want to because this whole segment is about you. But, like, when she goes to the um, opera or whatnot, it's the opera or the ballet, I can't remember which one it is at this moment in time, but when she goes, that blue dress, iconic. (laughs) 18. 
the role of Rasputin almost went to Sir Patrick Stewart. Oh! <laughs> Back to the Futures, Christopher Lloyd landed the ro- role as creepy character. I mean, he does a great job. Christopher Lloyd does a great job at whatever he fucking puts his mind to. I love when he's like falling apart. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, my adult self feels this on a deeper level. <laughs> But Sir Patrick Stewart, Game of Thrones, Jonathan Price, and Tim Curry were also in the running. I have to say, (laughs) I was about to say, I have to say, Tim Curry in that role would have given the whole movie. Would have been a way different movie, but I'm going to have to do a fun facts on Rocky Horror one day. (laughs) I love Rocky Horror. (laughs) You and me both. I think that's where we all fell in love damn with Tim it, Curry. Janet. <laughs> Every time I'm at work and I say, damn it, I say, damn it, Janet. <laughs> we used to have a girl that worked at, with us named Janet, and I had to stop saying uh. it while she worked there. It's just what it comes out. I'm sorry. It's so it's so easy. It just rolls off the tongue. At least you don't finish it with the, I love you. <laughs> uh, Maybe in your head, but... <laughs> I was about to say, to some of my co-workers, I just might, but shit. All right, 19. Anastasia's name holds special meaning. In the film, Vlad tells Anya that the name Anastasia means she will rise again. Mm-hmm. In other words, translations, it also means resurrection. And that's exactly what the fuck she is. She goes to foster care, and then she becomes a princess. Yep. Uh-oh. Don't we all wish we could become a princess? That was the take I Although got from the I movie. Could, if I could find a Dimitri, I would sell for what she does and elope. And the last fun fact, I don't really know. About it. Anyways, the Spanish version of the film features a huge star. Mexican pop star Thalia sings Journey to the Past in the Spanish version of Anastasia. I want to say I've heard that version and it's also a very good one. I don't think that you could do that song wrong. Yeah. But that is my last call for the day. We hope you enjoyed hanging out with us. If you did, let us know on our ratings. You can rate us. You can also share this episode with somebody that you think would enjoy it. You can also find us on our social medias. Not to toot my own horn too quickly, but (laughs) I am. She is. Pretty much got up. Caught up on all of them again for the third time. The third time's the the charm. <laughs> Fingers crossed I keep up with it this time. But you can actually find us updated on all of our social medias. Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. I have the TikToks. I have the reels showing you how to make all these drinks. I have the Instagram post with the photos correlating to each case. I've been working hard for us and for y'all these past few weeks. And it is paid off. So <laughs> you can find us at Tequila She Wrote on any of those. Like I said, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Tequila She Wrote. You can also email us if you have any case suggestions, drink recipes. It is Christmas season. So if you have any Christmas cocktails, we would love to hear them. Our our podcast is officially a year old as of the next episode that I record. So the next episode after this. Say December. And so we started this a year ago. 
with Christmas Cocktails, and we are back for Christmas Cocktails 2.0. And so if you have any suggestions for us, any liquors to try out, any beers for Trish to try out, <laughs> hit us up at tequilashewrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon set up for as little as $2 a month. You get ad-free episodes. You also get a bonus episode. And then if you pay a little more for different tiers, you have Sloan's Ruining Paradise. You have a Haunted episode. It just all kind of depends on what you want. There's also some merch. We finally got to see our merch via my friend Emily. <laughs> and the mug itself. I want one of my own. It's super cute. The sticker, also very cute. Um, I don't think we have... Do we have Do we have other merch? There's different merch for different <laughs> I was like, we made this a long time ago. So I'm like, uh, did we get other merch? There is. However, <laughs> I'm very interested in like local sourcing yes. our merch. So if you have any ideas on that, please share with us. I know we just said this is our one-year anniversary, but it still feels very new we're, to us. Yes, we're still we're learning. Still learning. <laughs> I can't. When she was like, our year's coming up. I went, wait, what? <laughs> We've been doing this a year? It's just, it's been, as much as I don't want to say that true crime is fun. True crime is not fun. It's very taxing and tolling. And these are real people lives that we are talking about, whether it's the victim or the culprit of it. These are all very real stories. But what I mean by this is fun is like, this is something that Trish and I do every Monday. We get together, we have our Mexican and our margaritas, and then we come up with fun cocktails to share with y'all. And this past year has been a freaking blast from that perspective. Researching the cases have been draining. <laughs> Some of them, yes. But it's what we signed up for, and we hope that y'all are having just as much fun here as we're having. Yes. And so, but if you do want to check out our Patreon and possibly get some of the merch and that, you have to go to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote. Or you can go to our socials, find our link tree, should be in like the description up top or whatnot, and click on that. There should be a Patreon button, and that should give you a direct link to our Patreon. If you're struggling, let us know. We'll try to get you there the best way we can. But I guess with that being said, until next time. Thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. Beep beep. Thank <laughs> you.